0: I'm Huronzani, and welcome to Tales of Baroque.
1: Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome. Welcome to to Tales Tales of Baroque.
0: Each episode, you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens.
1: In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
0: So, wherever you are, sit back, relax, and enjoy hearing about Vivaldi's Gloria and the Four Seasons. Hello Alan, thank you for joining me today. This is a very special episode indeed as you you aren't even in the country. (laughs) Perhaps you could tell us about where you are and what you've been up to over the past weeks.
2: Hi Hugh, it's lovely to speak with you again. And yes, indeed, I'm not in Australia at the moment. Um, I'm actually today in Prague in the Czech Republic for the first time. I've never been here before. So really lovely to see one of the what was one of the great cities of Europe in the time of Vivaldi and uh, somewhere where he in fact visited as well, uh, if only briefly. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've been mostly in Italy, um, particularly you know, a month in Venice and then a few weeks in Padua. Uh, during which I was commuting back to Venice to do some more research. So, uh, I've been having a really interesting time digging around in the archives in Venice, and so we might talk a bit more about that later on.
0: Well, I mean, I, I'm rather jealous, I've got to say, but it's probably been very cold, actually, where you've uh, where you've been, because I mean, given the the time frames that you you were over there during winter, um, were you not?
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, the end of winter, anyway, and leading into spring, which is um, certainly chilly in northern Italy, uh, though actually a good time to be in Venice because it avoids most of the crowds. As I guess many listeners will know, Venice gets terribly crowded with people during the summer. You really have to kind of elbow your way through the little narrow alleyways, and uh, in the winter months, it's a very pleasant place to be because there are just fewer people around. Still. ...plenty of tourists, but not nearly as busy as it gets in the summer, and so it is possible to get in to see things and to to visit places that are often crowded and... uh, um, ...yeah, really interesting and and of time. It's a, as I guess many listeners will know, it's a kind of strange, crazy kind of place in many ways, but I love being there and uh, such an interesting, remarkable place.
0: Well, as you said, we'll get to hear a little bit more about that later. But firstly, I wanted to talk about our upcoming Brandenburg program, Gloria and the Four Seasons, which features, of course, two of the best known works of Baroque repertoire today. But they weren't always so well known, were they, Um, nor so highly regarded as they are today. Perhaps we could start by talking about the revival of Vivaldi's work and why, in fact, it fell out of fashion in the first place. So perhaps we could start with the latter part of Vivaldi's life, following some of his more famous uh, publications like the the Opus No. 8 in 1725. He died in 1741, did he not? But he, he wasn't actually in Venice when he died.
2: That's right. He um, had uh, set out to move to Vienna, hoping for royal patronage from the Emperor Charles VI, who he had met back in uh, 1728, and the Emperor was very interested in him and uh, treated him very well, gave him a knighthood and uh, famously it was said that he had, uh, the emperor had spent more time talking to Vivaldi in that one meeting than he had to all of his ministers in the past couple of years. So <laughs> clearly he found v- Vivaldi a fascinating character. And I guess with uh, all of that kind of interest and support from the emperor, Vivaldi was keen to take up some royal patronage in Vienna, particularly because his career in Venice uh, effectively was stalling. The trouble was that uh, by the time he was in his 50s getting on for 60 uh, his music was not fashionable in the way that it had been earlier in his life um, fashion moved on quite quickly and we have a couple of wonderful uh, quotations from the period which tell us about just how fast the turnover of music was and so interesting that we're in his hometown in in Venice where things moved so quickly uh, Vivaldi had become kind of passé by the, by the time we get to the 1730s. And uh, so it looked like he was looking for a new opportunity to, to move to Vienna. So he sold up what he had, including a whole lot of his manuscripts in order to finance a move to Vienna. Um, however, it didn't all go to plan. Uh, as he said, he died in 1741. Well, he'd moved to to Vienna only just uh, before that, and it was only just after he got to Vienna, uh, with, when the emperor died in 1740. And so all of that promise of the support of the his royal protector and so forth, all of that suddenly disappeared and uh, he was left pretty much destitute and in fact died in poverty, um, very sadly, in 1741.
0: Yeah, it, it's a bit of an odd story, isn't it? And I think sometimes two things uh, there get conflated, that, um, that his music had fallen out of fashion and hence why he died in poverty, but it wasn't quite the, the, you know, so straightforward. It was really that the, the loss of the royal patronage that he'd been banking on that caused this sort of turn of, of events in, in a way. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, but maybe the successor for Charles VI wasn't so keen on, on Vivaldi's style of music.
2: That's right. In fact, there was a big kind of clean out of the whole music establishment in Vienna following the death of the emperor. Uh, And that was the way it tended to go, that each um, royal patron in Vienna uh, had particular interests, liked a particular kind of music. And so they hired the people that they liked. And then those people stayed on uh, for years, even for decades. And so the the kind of uh, taste for music in Vienna tended to be conservative. It would be whatever was fashionable at the time when a new emperor came in and uh, then it stayed pretty much the same until that emperor died and a new new, uh, person took over and they renewed the whole musical establishment, sacked most of the the staff and hired new and more fashionable musicians and uh, so Even if Valdi had succeeded in getting really established under Charles VI, there would have been no guarantee whatsoever that he would have continued to have the support of his successor. So uh, you're right. It's not the same thing that uh, he'd simply gone out of fashion and therefore died in poverty. Rather, he'd gone out of fashion and looking for a better opportunity, uh, set out to move to Vienna, and it was just really bad timing that uh, the emperor died at that point, and there was Vivaldi stuck in a a place a long way from home where he didn't have any of the kind of social networks and, and institutional support and so forth, I guess, that he was used to having at home in Venice. Uh, and he was really stuck, I think. So it's a very sad ending to uh, his life, which had been so interesting and so brilliant in many respects.
0: And so Vivaldi dies in Vienna. What happens to his music? And and you said he'd, he'd sold quite a lot of manuscripts and things like that, even just to finance the voyage in the first place.
2: That's right. So a lot of his manuscripts had been dispersed. Um, there were manuscripts all over the place because uh, there are um, – there was one major collection of his manuscripts which was his own personal library. He kept a sort of archive set of of all of his pieces uh, and that is what has come down to us for the most part today which is really lucky thing that we have this tremendous collection which includes most of his works. On the other hand there were particular pieces that he uh, that he sold off not um, just in a kind of general sale but he actually composed on commission not for particular performances as was the usual thing. so when you wrote an opera for example you just didn't didn't sit down and think "Hmm, I think I'll write an opera today you know and then see what happens it was you definitely had to have the money you know you had to have a commission from the theatre and you were writing for particular singers for a particular occasion in a particular place and so forth however Vivaldi had a bit of an unusual business model later in his life where he was famous enough that visitors who came to Venice and there were many aristocratic visitors who came during the, during the grand tour, uh, and they would come and look him up. And uh, so he would say, well, would you like me to write you a new concerto? And a wealthy aristocratic visitor can say, yes, please. I'd like my very own Vivaldi concerto, which nobody else has. It's not one you can buy in a shop or that's, you know been composed for anybody else. It's a collector's item, kind of like buying a painting by Canaletto or something like that, that you can take away with you and you can have your very own Vivaldi concerto. Uh, And so he found that he could actually make more money from selling individual pieces like that than he could by getting them published and printed, because once he'd sold them to the publisher, it was the publisher who made all the money out of uh, printing music and there was not much of a market for that. So uh, this is one of the ways in which his music was distributed also by individual sales.
0: Mm, I mean, it's fascinating to think, and and, uh, those manuscripts obviously were done
2: by hand. That's right, yeah, and in fact, of course, that's what the word manuscript means, literally handwritten. Uh, And so what we have are are some um, pieces that are in his own handwriting and others that are been copied out by professional copyists because there was a relatively small market for printed music and particularly in Italian music where the turnover of new music was so quick things went out of fashion very quickly there was not very much call for actually printing music and selling multiple copies of it it was more that you composed a thing for a particular occasion you got a professional copyist in fact in Vivaldi's case it was often his father uh, who was a violinist who, who acted as his copyist who would write out um, a handwritten copy and that was the one that would be used in the performances. So the professional copyists were very good, they worked very fast and very accurately and that was actually cheaper and more effective than going through the whole business of getting them printed. Mm, mm. Um, however we do have a few uh, pieces by Vivaldi that were printed and uh, amongst them is the Famous Four Seasons. It's one of the reasons that that piece was so widely distributed and so well known was because it was imprinted, and therefore copies could be bought all over Europe.
0: Yes, and and we'll we'll get to the Four Seasons just in a, a minute. But on the the topic of manuscripts, there is an autograph manuscript, as in a manuscript in Vivaldi's own hand, of the Gloria that we're going to hear in this program, the Gloria in D major, RV five eight nine. What do you know about this manuscript and, and where where it comes uh, from, where it was, you know, how, how it survived?
2: Well, um, as far as we know, it is one of those ones that came from Vivaldi's own collection of his scores, which he had uh, kept as his sort of working copies. So it's not one of those kind of fair copies. that was made by a copyist for sale. It was a uh, copy that has, has kind of been worked over. You know, he's made alterations to it. He's kind of scratched things out and, um, and added uh, extra things in. Um, so it's one of those, those set of uh, pieces that he was uh, continuously developing, working up for particular occasions. And so it belongs in that large set which had uh, come down after his death to an aristocratic patron who, who owned the whole set uh, and then divided it up as part of an inheritance, so half went I guess to, to one son and half to another. Uh, and so it ended up being simply two uh, large collections which were separated and luckily they both survived and were able to be bought up by the, uh, the National Library of Turin. In the early 20th century, and that the two halves of the collection were reunited. And so this manuscript comes from one of those large collections of, of Vivaldi's original scores in his own hand. Uh, and so it's really exciting to you know to have this collection of pieces where for many composers, you know, the ones that the manuscripts that have survived are not the ones that they wrote out themselves, but rather copyists. Uh, fair copies, but this is the real thing. It's kind of the one that he actually had on the music stand in front of him, as far as we know, uh, from which he was working. Um, and that has a couple of interesting implications because it means because it was not a fair copy made for somebody else. Uh, it um, has a few ambiguous bits in it where things are, are not entirely clear where something's been crossed out or scraped out or and something else has been added. Um, but also it means he didn't necessarily need to put in every detail because he was working from it himself. If anybody had a question, he was there to answer it. And so uh, he didn't need to uh, to write in some of the details, which you might see in a fair copy score. From what
0: period of Vivaldi's life uh, does this manuscript actually come from? It, it obviously precedes the, the publication of Opus 8 and The, and the Four Seasons, doesn't it?
2: Like a lot of Vivaldi's manuscripts, it doesn't actually have a date on it, so we can't be entirely sure, but the scholars who've studied this very closely um, think it's probably dates from about 1716-17. Um, so that's well into his career when he was quite well established and, and famous, um, he was uh, well in his 30s by then, and so uh, it's a period when he was also composing operas and I think we hear some of that kind of lively operatic style in the music for the, uh, for the Gloria. Um, it's also a period in which Venice had been in, involved in one of its many wars against the Ottomans, and they'd had some success, and so the, uh, the use of trumpets and so forth in this, and the very kind of lively, almost martial kind of style of some of the music, uh, probably reflects that kind of context in which it was a sort of celebration of, of military victory. We don't know that, but it's, it's kind of plausible that that would be a reason why he wrote it the way
0: he did. And it's interesting, this period of Vivaldi's life that you're mentioning, you know, 1716, 1717, 17, 17, is also synonymous with the the period of time at the Ospedale della Pietà where uh, Francesco Gasparini had taken leave and, uh, in fact, the the position of Maestro di Capella sort of was, was vacant, so Vivaldi was writing even more music than usual to sort of, you know, uh, provide for the demands that the the Ospedali had in terms of its music demands, it would have been a prolific period of time for him.
2: Yeah, that's right, and a period in which he writes a lot of church music for exactly that reason. Um, we should probably go back a step and uh, just remind listeners of what we're talking about here in relation to the Ospedali, in, in particular with, with Vivaldi. It was the uh, Pio Ospedale della Pietà, literally the Pious Hospital of Mercy, which was the institution at which he famously worked for much of his career in Venice. It's often described as an orphanage, though that's not entirely uh, accurate. It was a home for uh, abandoned or orphaned girls. And it, uh, along with um, three other institutions, uh, charitable institutions in Venice at the same time, uh, it stood out for the fact that it gave training in music to some, not all by any means, but to some of the most promising um Girls and women who lived there. Now, one of the things that we tend to assume when we hear that it's an orphanage is that it was a children's choir and a, you know, that it was made up. A, it was a kind of a school, you know, school choir kind of thing. And of course, we do hear this kind of music sometimes performed by school groups today. But that's far from being the case. Uh, it was, in fact, um, an institution in which there were perhaps a thousand uh, girls and, and women living there. Um, and of those, there were only about twenty or thirty who were in the elite music program. And so they were highly selected and they were highly trained. They operated at the same level as the professional musicians in the theatres. The singers were considered to be the equal of any of the opera singers in Europe. The violinists were uh, the equal of the the top soloists anywhere in Europe at the time. So it was really outstanding professional level performers uh, who this music was written for. Um, so it was uh, a, th- a thing that you had to do if you visited Venice during the period was to go to church at the, uh, the churches, the chapels of the four hospedati, uh, but in particular, the chapel of the Pietà, in order to hear this remarkable orchestra and choir made up entirely of female performers. And that in itself was a huge novelty at a time when women didn't get to perform professionally. Uh, the only female professional performers you could hear in Europe in this period were opera singers. All of the orchestras and uh, and all of the church musicians were male. Um, so this is a real anomaly and uh, it was one of the ways in which they raised finance to support the running of the hospital and its charitable work uh, was by people coming to hear the choir and orchestra and donating Money to support yeah. the the work of the
0: institution. I find it I find it fascinating that whole notion of donating and 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 but but also um, that that apparently tickets were also sold in, in in a way that there there were you know sort of obligatory contributions to to these ex- concert like experiences, and that there was some um, some people being upset about members of the congregation turning their backs on the altar and actually just facing the musicians instead of. <laughs> instead of being in the regular seated position um, uh, in the church
2: yes that's right so uh, it was partly uh, you know you could go to church and uh, and hear them perform during a service but they did also do some uh, what we would think of as as public performances um, but they were always within the chapel and uh, if um, listeners have been to to witness to see the chapel of Pieta uh, you'll recall it it has um, screens around the galleries where the musicians would be so that you can't really see the performance behind there was for the purposes of modesty and so that you wouldn't be distracted from taking part in worship uh, by by looking at the musicians however people did go there uh, because the music was so fantastic a lot of people did go to church mainly just to hear the music and so yes there were instances where people actually turned their their chairs around with their backs to the altar in order to face the the musicians and uh, at one point uh, in 1749, the Pope actually issued a, an encyclical letter um, denouncing this practice and saying that there was too much fancy music in church, that uh, people were only going to church to listen to the music. Well. Fair enough, but the other side of that was that uh, the reason they had all of this good music was to get people to go to church, because otherwise it was pretty boring and you didn't go, you know, so uh, it's uh, it's hard to know which, you know, which is the, the right solution. Um, but the other thing to say about that, um, speaking of the church of the Pieta, is that the, I'm sure many listeners have, have been there and, and been into the church and uh, they do performances of Vivaldi's music there and so forth, but um, what they don't, generally tell you, at least very prominently, is the fact that the that the Church of the Pietà as it is now was actually built after Vivaldi had died. It was uh, started in 1745 and uh, completed more or less in 1760, and he'd already died in 1741. Now, there was a a chapel there previously, the one where he worked, but the one that you see today is actually the rebuilt version of it. However, it does give you a pretty good idea of the way that it was weighed out, and the chapels of the Alba Ospedale are also similarly constructed with a a gallery um, with screens around it so that you are not too distracted by the performance.
0: Yes, as you're very familiar, Alan, um, sometimes stretching the truth a little bit is some sort of cultural. Right among Italians, they, they, <laughs> uh, Let's not let, yes, let, let's not understand. yeah. Let's not let, let the details get in get the way, in the way
2: yeah. of good story.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now back to the the Gloria and what you'd mentioned about about one of the. Uh, Many victories that the Venetians were, were celebrating against the Turks as perhaps a setting for this Gloria, the opening of, of it at, at least, and sort of the sentiment that we hear. Maybe you could describe the opening movement itself from the Gloria. Obviously, the only thing that the choir are going to be here singing is Gloria in excelsis Deo, so glory be to God on high, but, but what musically is going on here?
2: Yeah, it's um, a really kind of iconic uh, opening to the piece, which is probably familiar to, to many, many listeners, uh, where you open with the uh, trumpet playing in uh, octave leaps. And uh, it plays in D major because that's the key the trumpets are in. Um, but it really gives it a kind of fanfare sound. And uh, that's one of the things that makes us think perhaps it was associated with that idea of, uh, of military uh, celebrating military victory. Um, and uh, that sound uh, is taken up by the choir with their kind of acclamations of gloria, gloria. And uh, so between that and the sort of swirling sounds on the violins and the leaps in the trumpet, it makes a really uh, exciting, stirring and festive kind of opening to the piece.
0: Now, I've got a very special treat for listeners. From the Brandenburg archives, I've dug up the, the ABC Classic live broadcast that was actually recorded at the City Recital Hall in 2009, uh, where Paul Dyer led the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and and Choir in a similar program. So why don't we go back to 2009 and listen to this wonderful gem from from the Brandenburg Archives. Obviously, the, the the effect there, the fanfare effect that you were talking about, Alan, is quite prominent, but it's just one trumpet and one oboe uh, augmenting the regular string orchestra and, and the choir. I mean, it's a f- phenomenal effect, really, for such um, for, for so few instruments.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, but Cavalde uh, really knows the tricks of the trade by this stage, and so he's able to, to create this really stirring effect just with the use of the one trumpet, um, partly because uh, the... Um, the, the strings really enforce the effect, uh, reinforce the effect, so that uh, there are often times when he can use an oboe to pretend to be a trumpet, he can have the strings playing the kind of figuration that we associate with trumpets playing fanfare kind of figures, and so we almost hear the trumpet even when it's not there, or rather we hear a kind of, uh, we feel like we're hearing more than one trumpet, even though it's only the single one.
0: In terms of the, the oboe that you've, you've mentioned there, obviously, this is a, a quite a particular instrument and is not featured in all of Vivaldi's music, although he does write for it quite prolifically. Um, it has a special role to play throughout the Gloria. Perhaps you could tell us about how Vivaldi uses the oboe more, more globally through, through the work
2: yeah the oboe was a relatively modern instrument still at the time um the what we think of now as the baroque oboe had been developed around the french court in the 1680s and 90s so by here in the 1710s it's still a pretty modern new kind of instrument and one of the striking things about the orchestra of Pietà was that uh, in order to kind of keep themselves um i, I guess in the, the public mind and uh to to be always seen to be on the cutting edge, they took up every new kind of instrument that there was available and so Vivaldi wrote pieces for them that included all kinds of interesting instruments, mandolin and lute and bassoon, when the bassoon was also quite a new thing. He wrote concertos for the bassoon before just about anybody else did Uh, and so he makes really interesting use of the oboe as well and one of the things that the oboe was good at is that on the one hand, it can be kind of bright and exciting. It has a kind of punchy sound, uh, rather unlike the modern oboe, um, so that it could pretend to be a trumpet. But on the other hand, it's also a very lyrical instrument. And so it can make a really vocal kind of sound and be- it can do it beautifully with the voice, uh, so that you can have um, almost a sort of echo or the effect of, uh, of a voice almost in dialogue with um, as if we were hearing the, the thoughts of the Singer, along with their actual words that they're singing, it's, it's as if the oboe kind of reflects the, um, the what's going on in the, the, the subtext, the, the the kind of idea that lies behind the mm. words that we hear expressed um, literally by the I- singer.
0: And there's a, a very special moment in the Gloria, and in fact, one of my favorite parts of the, the whole work for uh, written for oboe and, and soprano, usually just accompanied by the organ that, as the continuo. It's the Domine Deus, where it's a duet between uh, oboe and, and soprano, but we, have, we hear the oboe first and then the soprano comes in a little bit later. Um, what can you tell us about this particular movement and its context in the, the rest of the Gloria as a whole?
2: Mm. So the words are, as you say, um, Lord God, Heavenly King. And so sometimes those words can be said in a very kind of ma- majestic sort of way. But here it's very lyrical and beautiful. And I wonder if what's going on, or at least part of what's going on in this setting, is that uh, we, are, we are looking up to God in a, uh, a mode of uh, lighthearted praise, I suppose. And perhaps the oboe is also reminding us of uh, God the Son. So we've got God the Father in the words and God the Son perhaps in the instrument that's accompanying. Um, So interesting that he doesn't make this uh, a majestic or or very kind of exciting movement in the the sense that the opening Gloria movement is, uh, but rather he makes it into a really beautiful and lyrical movement in which we we get this duet between the voice and the oboe.
0: Well, let's go back to the Brandenburg archives again and um, and hear, um, as it was performed in 2009, Kirsten Barry on the, on the oboe and soprano soloist Belinda Montgomery, who will be singing in the choir, actually, as it, as it turns out, um, in, in this year's performance as well. Um, it's a, a beautiful recording, so I, I won't um, hold listeners up any longer and um, put it on now. One thing we haven't done, Alan, is actually talk about um, the, the Gloria and the, how it's structured uh, in, in terms of the number of movements and, and, and what exactly we're going to hear. Um, while this beautiful music is going on, perhaps you could tell us about the the pattern of, of uh, how Vivaldi has structured the Gloria. Yeah, I mean, I can see what I think to be a pattern of sort of chorus and soloist chorus and you know, large group, smaller group. Um, perhaps you could elaborate on, on that.
2: Yeah, this is one of the, the kind of liturgical settings which is on a, a large scale in the sense that it is spread out into a lot of movements. So the, uh, the text of the ordinary of the Mass, the Kyrie, Gloria, uh, Credo, Sanctus and, uh, and the Dei, uh, each of them uh, is quite varied in terms of length. So the Kyrie uh, et at the beginning is only three lines. The Annus Dei at the end is only three lines. And so they tend to, to need to be stretched out. Whereas the long texts like the Gloria and the Credo are generally done uh, relatively quickly. You kind of get through, you just hear each line once and, uh, and move on to the next thing. But for a setting like this, which is probably celebratory and for a special occasion, Um, there was a uh, habit of dividing it up into lots of short movements and so each couple of lines in the text gets its own movement and uh, so when you do that it spreads it out into quite a substantial longer piece but it also means that you need to find interesting contrasts and so uh, as you say, he, um, he finds ways of doing that by alternating between choruses and solos and also between fast and slow movements so that uh, we get some movements that are lively and energetic and, and kind of fanfare like at the opening, but also movements which use counterpoint, which sound much more like traditional uh, Renaissance kind of church music. Um, mm. And that was what people expected to hear in church. So it's a, a mixture of this of operatic modern style with the more traditional contrapuntal style and uh, by the time you then mix in soloists and and choral movements then it provides the kind of contrast that you need to keep it interesting throughout the, the whole work and of course that reflects the meaning of the words in the individual movements as well and there was a kind of tradition as well about which sections you would set in particular ways which ones would be for the chorus which ones would be for the soloist
0: And indeed, the soloists that Vivaldi use here, we've got either a soprano soloist or uh, duetting sopranos or an alto soloist, and at the time it would have been sung, obviously, by female singers uh, at the Pietà. How usually is, um, is this music produced these days? I mean, in, in Brandenburg's performance coming up, uh, we have Michael Burden, who's going to be performing as a countertenor, the, the alto solo. Is this sort of more in keeping with, with contemporary performance tradition nowadays?
2: Yes, that's right. Um, Of course, we can never really reproduce exactly what they did at the time, in part because we can never know for sure exactly what they did at the time. Um, But also we will never be able to hear it in the same way that people at the time heard it because our our heads are full of all kinds of other music and so on. So inevitably, we are uh, kind of inventing a modern performance practice in order to try and recreate this music as effectively as we can and so the use of a countertenor as the alto soloist does come from the English choral tradition particularly uh, but it's also become an established way of performing a lot of the music that was written for high male voices and particularly for castrati because of course we can't uh, have any more of those today the little operation that's needed to do that would be illegal these days so we tend to have uh, counter tenors to perform the parts written for Costrati. And therefore, it makes uh, kind of sense to um, perform uh, this kind of sacred music, which would normally be performed all by male performers uh, using a counter tenor. Though interesting that in this case, it is one of the relatively few examples that actually was written for female uh, soprano and alto. And that does bring us to another really interesting question about this piece, to which we don't yet have a completely satisfactory answer, and that is that, as far as we know, it was written for the pietà, for, as we said, an all-female choir, and it has parts for soprano, alto, tenor and bass. (laughs) So, who sang the tenor and bass parts? Well, this is a, a debate that's gone round and round amongst our scholars over the last century or so. And the latest thinking is that, um, well, I, I imagine, you know, many listeners will have their own kind of uh, hypothesis, you know, lots of people, you would you would think logically, well, they must have had some way of doing it. Did they get the, uh, the music staff like Vivaldi himself to, to sing the lower parts, the, the male music teachers and so on. Well, no, we don't think they did that partly because they were well, not there as singers, they were there as instrumentalists, uh, and also because they didn't actually perform with the women. They the women who were in the members of the choir, uh, although they weren't nuns, they lived effectively like nuns and they were very much separated from the outside world and separated from uh, all men other than the priests who, who gave the mass and so on and the professional music teachers. Uh, So that doesn't seem plausible, they couldn't have brought in other male professional singers, um, and so how did they do it? And the latest uh, thinking that we have uh, from the top scholars in the field is that they sang it all with female voices, including the tenor and bass parts. And so some some listeners may have seen a wonderful Uh, documentary made by the BBC about an attempt to recreate this. Um, It's an English choir that uh, is all female and trained up to sing the piece with tenor tenor and bass female singers. And they then go and perform it in the chapel of the Pieta in costume. The whole thing is a wonderful, wonderful uh, experiment. Um, And it really works. You know, you can actually hear the, the tenor and bass parts because uh, when you look at the score, the bass part particularly don't go especially low, there are none of the sort of real super bass notes that we often get in music at this period, it just kind of goes down to the to the sort of medium baritone range, and so it's possible for women who have very low voices to actually sing all of those parts
0: it's incredible that there aren't more ensembles which try and exploit those um, those types of female voices in fact because it, it is quite uncommon to to have such a low female voice but they do exist and and of course for that the purposes of that documentary um, you know it, it's been proven that, that you can find enough of them to actually constitute a choir so that's uh it was an incredible feat, um, and uh, I certainly do, like you, Alan, recommend that, um, that listeners go and uh, seek out that documentary if they can. Out of the Gloria, then, Alan, do you have a particular favourite moment? I mean, I've, I've shared my uh, oboe soprano uh, duet as, as one of my favourite moments of the whole work. Is there something that, that strikes you
2: about the Gloria? Oh, yes, there are, there are so many wonderful movements in this piece. Um, one of my favourites is actually the Ettingterra Parks. Which is uh, the the second movement, where we hear the choir in uh, doing their kind of um, pseudo-Renaissance counterpoint, and you can hear all of the parts come in one after the other, and uh, that's one of the ones where it is really striking when you hear it done all by female voices, because you hear every voice entering one after the other, and you go, "Oh, there's the tenor, there's the bass," and it's just wonderfully evocative stuff too, because it's um, uh, he is doing although in uh, the, the texture is kind of an Renaissance' counterpoint, the harmony is very much a value, it's very modern and so we get some wonderfully intense moments in the harmony which really make us kind of uh, sit back in our seats and go, wow, listen to that.
3: Mm.
0: Well, I won't deprive listeners of that fantastic suggestion, so let me put that on. This is the Et in Terra Pax, which, as you said, Alan, is the second movement from the Gloria, performed here by the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and Brandenburg Choir in 2009. Now Alan, having just been in Venice for a month, um, I think it would be fascinating to change things up a bit and maybe you could tell us about the Venice of today and what remnants there are of the Baroque period for tourists today to discover and um, and explore.
2: Well, um, there's an awful lot of uh, Vivaldi um, kind of tourism in a way in, in Venice these days. In fact, uh, those who've, who've been there will probably have noticed how in um, many uh, hoardings around the place, there are advertising signs for posters up for, you know, hear the, the, the famous Four Seasons tonight. Uh, and there is one of the uh, churches where they do concerts with the, with the Four Seasons virtually every single day. And um, now at one level we go, oh my goodness, you know, do we really need to hear the four seasons every single day? Um, I guess it's, it's a thing, you know, for, for the tourists and so forth. Uh, and I think about those poor musicians who have to go in and play the same piece day after day. But in some ways it's the same sort of thing as you, you know, if you go to a musical Phantom of the Opera or something and uh, those performers are doing that same show, eight shows a week and they bring something to it. They make it lively and interesting and fresh each time they do it. And that's kind of the professionalism of the the performance. But the other thing that strikes me about this, um, all these performances of the Four Seasons in Venice, is that uh, they do a rather clever thing, which is that the Four Seasons is half the programme because the piece is not that long. Um, and the other half, they introduce other pieces by Vivaldi. So the people come in, they see this poster saying, oh, the Four Seasons, I must go and hear that in Venice. And at the same time, they then introduce other pieces by Vivaldi, which the audiences won't know. And so they're actually um, spreading the love, I guess we could say, to, to, um, for audiences who may not uh, go to, to hear classical concerts very often to get to hear some other pieces and realize that there's more to it, in fact, than just the Four Seasons.
0: And I'm sure among the, the ranks of these musicians that there are several people who would love to put up their hands to perform XYZ concerto because there are so many for written for so many different instruments as you've already mentioned that they, they all get to have a go, I'm sure it's a, you know, on, on any one particular day.
2: That's right. And Vivoli uh, famously <clears throat> wrote um, 500 odd concertos, of which uh, about half are for violin. So <laughs> there are plenty to choose from and wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, it's sometimes said unkindly that they're all a bit samey, but of course, they're by the same composer and they, uh, they work to a similar style. But the really interesting thing is that in fact they're all different. They really are all different in their structure, in their themes, in the textures, the moods and so forth of them. So uh, it's really a, a fabulous repertoire to explore.
0: Now, could you put the Four Seasons into context for listeners, Alan? Obviously, they, f- they hail from Opus 8, but they're not the only four concerti in Opus 8. In fact, there are 12 concertos in that collection. So, so maybe you could tell us about, about that Opus and, and how the Four Seasons was presented to the world when it was first published.
2: Yeah as you say the crucial thing about it is in the first instance there's not actually one piece it's a set of four pieces one for each season and so each of them is a concerto in itself consisting of three movements fast slow fast so there are 12 movements in total in the four seasons but uh, it's not a big enough um, piece to stand alone as uh, a publication probably it was typical at the time to actually uh, publish things in sets of six or twelve and so uh, It seems to have kind of um, padded it out in a way by putting in a set of other concertos as well, which made it into a more substantial publication. And as we mentioned before, one of the advantages of this was that uh, it could then be printed and disseminated much more widely. Venice was an important centre of music printing at the time. Um, But uh, some of Vivaldi's music started to be printed also in the Netherlands, which was also uh, Amsterdam was an important centre of music publishing. And so by that means his music was uh, available much more widely across Europe. And uh, the Four Seasons in particular became very famous and widely loved. And in fact, the King of France insisted on hearing the spring concerto from the Four Seasons, in the 1740s, after the music had started to go out of fashion in Italy, it was still fashionable in other places. Um, now it, it might be worth just talking a little bit about the, the way that the Four Seasons works as uh, a set of concertos, because there is one for each of the seasons. Um, and But uh, as I guess a lot of listeners will know, it's not just uh, a set of pieces which broadly describe the different seasons of the year. In fact, they uh, appear to be illustrating a set of sonnets. Uh, We don't know who wrote the poetry, it could even have been Vivaldi himself. But they give us quite specific scenarios of what's going on in each concerto. And this is really unusual at the time. There were some kind of novelty pieces which imitated particular um, sounds on instruments Um, and so we get some pieces from going back over the previous generation or two with imitated bird song and and what have you. The Four Seasons goes a long way beyond that because uh, in the the poems we see particular scenes there are actual things going on with real people doing stuff and so uh, the music is illustrating not just um, what it's like in springtime but in the opening movement of spring for example we hear hear people singing and dancing uh, to celebrate the arrival of spring and then in the second movement of spring we see the goat herd sitting on the, uh, the shepherd sitting on the hillside with his dog sitting beside him and Vivaldi writes in so there's not only the poems but he actually writes in on the score the description of the specific things that are happening so that you can actually see exactly what each element in the music is illustrating
0: and then the masterful uh, emotive context that would surround those sounds so for example we can hear the dog barking but and and that's quite obvious as to how it's presented but then you also have the the feeling of the 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 breeze sort of softly blowing throughout that movement as well
2: yeah Vivaldi actually writes in on that movement on the score exactly what's happening not only generally but in each individual part so the first violins are the 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 leaves of the trees blowing gently in the wind, um, the, uh, the viola is the, the dog barking um, and so on and, uh, and that's really fun when you know what it is. Uh, so some performances of the piece you hear it's all just kind of very gentle and, and smooth and, um, and the viola just goes bom, 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 in the background whereas he actually writes on the score. Uh, this should be played loudly and raspingly throughout so the viola, it's a, one of the great viola solos, you know, we, we say as a, as a joke because it's all on one note, but it's it's the dog barking, you should hear it going ruff, 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 rough and, and, and when you do and you know that's what it is, it's really fun, you know, it's very entertaining and clever the way that he does that and so we get that all the way through, all the, all the pieces we have slipping and sliding on the ice in winter and you can really, when you, when you have the words in front of you, and know what it is, then you can really hear the, the people slipping and sliding on the ice and the sound of the rain falling in autumn and, and so on, all of those things are written in very cleverly into to do its individual
0: movement. Now, the listeners will be uh, thrilled that there's going to be a printed concert program for this Laurier in the Four Seasons. So they'll have those notes right in front of their eyes as they, as they hear everything unfold. But perhaps uh, for now, we can actually start with the, the second movement from spring and hear the dog barking in a recording that actually uh, features uh, soloist Elizabeth Wallfish with Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Thank you. Just lived through the the last stages uh, of a Venetian uh, winter. Uh, did you hear any of these things, or, or did uh, did any of the what what's conjured up in the sonnets actually seem to seem to appear before your eyes, Alan, during this during this time? <laughs> any slipping and sliding on ice, for example?
2: <laughs> now, we weren't slipping and sliding on the ice. Luckily, by um, by February, but it can get really chilly in northern Italy. Um, I guess we tend to think of Italy, Italy's climate as being a little bit similar to, um, uh, you know, to to Australia, where it's uh, gets hot in summer and so forth. But in northern Italy, in particular, where you're right up close to the Dolomites um, and near the Alps in in Venice, you can actually, uh, as you catch the train across from Padua to Venice, for example, you can see the snow on the top of the hills e- even after the um, the main part of winter is, has passed. So when the wind comes around from that direction boy you really feel it, it cuts through like a knife and that's I think what he is capturing in a lot of the music for, for winter in particular. Um, we know that uh, around the time when he wrote this, Vivaldi uh, had taken up a job as music director to the Duke of Mantua, and it was long thought that this was Describing scenes around Mantua. In fact, it may be that he actually had written the pieces a couple of years earlier before he went to Mantua. But certainly, it's a, that kind of North Italian plain somewhere that we're <clears throat> seeing all of this scene unfold. And uh, yes, it gets really chilly, and when you're stuck out in the wind, you, boy, you really know about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's. Why don't we segue to the opening movement of Winter? The violin concerto in F minor is the use of F minor here topical with regards to to winter itself. Uh, Alan, is this is this something as a as a device in terms of the sound of, of F minor? Is that would that have been a a, a purposeful choice there?
2: I would think so. Um, F minor is a key that is not kind of immediately suited to string instruments. They like to play in in uh, keys with lots of sharps in them because the strings of the the violins are tuned to G, D, A and E. Uh, and those are all that the keys that are associated with those strings uh, are the ones which have sharps in them. And uh, so F minor though has four flats. So it's really kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. It's about as far as you can go uh, towards the flat direction in the sorts of tunings that are used in the period without going really horribly out of tune. What that does is it means you're not using open strings very much on the, the stringed instruments. Um, and so it gives it a kind of uh, a slightly darker covered sort of sound uh, in a lot of the the music particularly and that, that's a particularly effective where we're trying to create that atmosphere of uh, of the kind of tension of the um, uh, the cold weather and just f- feeling, you know, we're sitting there freezing and shivering and waiting for the, the spring to come. Um, and uh, the darkness of the minor key, as well, I think, is really effective as as part of that. When the storm does come, uh, come whirling in, we we hear it in this uh, really kind of dark, scary sort of minor key. Mm.
0: So here again, Elizabeth Warfish with Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and and this album, to remind listeners, was released in nineteen ninety seven. So it's it's a while yet, but. Um... <laughs> But I'll have some more details for you in a minute. That um, that there's a new recording soon to be on the way. Wow. So as I hinted at, Alan, uh, as part of Gloria and the Four Seasons, uh, the Brandenburg is going to be recording in, in uh, Melbourne, actually, at, at MRC, uh, both uh, the Gloria and the, the Four Seasons for future release on Brandenburg One. So we're finally going to get after the n- several times that, that Sean Lee Chan has actually performed this live for audiences and, and at many um, uh, ancillary events and development events as, as well, like um, the, our, our famous gala dinner or spring dinner. Um, he's finally going to get a chance to actually uh, record to tape his version of the of the Four Seasons, which will be the first version recorded in in almost thirty years. I mean, it's been twenty five years since that since that version was recorded with uh, uh, with Elizabeth Warfish. So perhaps um, we could finish today with one of your uh, favorite movements that you were telling me about earlier off air, Alan. Yet again in a minor key, but um, but not quite the same affect as as what we've just heard with this um very chilly F minor.
2: That's right. Yeah, one of my favorite movements is the uh the third movement of Summer. Um where we get, uh, again, the, this fantastic storm effect, which Vivaldi does so well. And it's it, the, this kind of music was imitated so much in the period after because this was so famous and, and this kind of style that Vivaldi had developed for string playing in particular was so thrilling uh, that it was taken up by lots of other musicians afterwards, lots of other composers. Uh, but. Um, this is kind of the original and best in a way, you could say. It's where he creates an effect, which I'm sure it comes has a lot to do with opera as well, because, you know, remember he's an important opera composer during this period, where the, the image of a storm at sea was a kind of standard one, which was used in opera aria, so the character would be singing words the effect of I feel like a, st- a ship's tossed on the ocean I don't know which way to turn somebody come and save me um, and uh, so to illustrate that it's kind of stormy music we have the swirling violins and the, we can imagine the the that storm tossed sea and the the um, lightning flashes and so forth, so he calls on all of that kind of imagery that listeners at the time also would have associated with the theatre. And he brings that into instrumental performance so that he creates a sort of effect without a singer that you would expect to hear in in an opera aria that um, that creates this kind of thrilling effect, and so it's um, it really is quite scary music it's not scary in quite the sense that uh, say the the Dies of Mozart's requiem, listeners will know or even that of Verdi's requiem or the ride of the valkyries you know these are very famous scary pieces of music that come later on but in a way you could almost say that, that those those famous scary pieces would not have been possible without Vivaldi having written this kind of thing first because it it creates this effect of the the kind of thrilling rush of the the strings uh, which um, conjures up all of that atmosphere of wild weather and uh, and the um, a storm rolling in.
0: And I can't imagine, I mean, obviously it's very difficult, as you've, you've said time and time again, for us to unhear all of what we've already heard and uh, sort of unlearn all of these cultural things that, that, that are, are our own cultural baggage that we have here in the, in the 21st century. But, but how this would have been so powerful and, and incredible to hear for the first time when nothing like this had ever been written uh, before. You know, it just—it just must have sent shivers up everyone's spines when they uh, when they heard this sort of this this music for the first time.
2: Yeah, and I think a measure of that, in a way, is the fact that it still does. You know, when you hear it live in the concert hall uh, with a really good orchestra going for it, it's absolutely riveting stuff. Um, it it still has the same effect, I think, every time you hear it, and. The music is so powerful, so effective that I, I think it's one of the reasons why it's been performed so many times in so many different ways by different kinds of instruments. So um, it's uh, it's such a showpiece that uh, soloists and other kinds of instruments, even something like the trombone, for example, uh, you know, people will record the, the Four Seasons because it's almost it's so impossibly difficult to do that an absolute virtuoso can pull it off, uh, and when they do, it's it's really exciting. There are. Um, uh, there are I mean if you look on YouTube, you can find a performance of this music on every ima- imaginable instrument and quite a few instruments you didn't even know existed. But one of the exciting ones for this kind of music is a terrific recording actually of this storm sequence from summer uh, played on two electric guitars by um, kind of heavy metal, Players, There's a band called Children of Bodum, which I've, I've used their recording from time to time to demonstrate this. And it works really well. You can, see, you can just uh, imagine that, um, uh, that people at the time in the 18th century would have found this just absolutely thrilling. What Vivali would have thought of hearing it on two electric guitars is hard to know. But I think actually he would have been uh, quite thrilled to think not only that um, this music uh, was still being played at all 300 years later and just that idea would have been completely shocking to him I think but that people were finding new ways to perform it which also bring out the exciting characters of the music i think he would have found quite delightful
0: perhaps i'll leave the children of Bodum recording on youtube for for listeners to go out and discover um, but I will play absolutely the um, the Elizabeth warfish version, and because it is th- so thrilling, bring our conversation to a close with the Presto from from Summer, because it's just such a fantastic. And it's almost nothing to be said after you've heard this. You need to go sit down and maybe <laughs> have a have a, have a cup of tea to relax. But um, but yes, yeah. Thank you, Alan, again for for such a fantastic conversation and um and for enlightening <laughs> us so much uh, about about the world of Vivaldi and 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 his music.
2: Uh, Lovely to speak with you again uh, Hugh and uh, as you say what better way to go out than with the exciting uh, music from the storm sequence of summer.
0: Thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatory of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani, from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.
1: July, discover the Sufi whirling dervishes of Turkey's Meblevi order in Ottoman Baroque. This rare live experience blends traditional Turkish and period instruments, choral settings of Rumi's poetry and a world premiere commissioned for the Brandenburg Choir. Don't miss the whirling dervishes as they spin gracefully into a mystical trance to purify their hearts and commune with the divine. Book your tickets now at Brandenburg dot com dot au